Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He, he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it, where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, uh, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed of the, of the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. <clears throat> Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All of the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Thanks. <laughs> the Lord, sorry. Um, I'd like you to keep your fingers, if you can, in both those passages. Because um, we'll look at both of them um, this morning. Um, and what an amazing passage, particularly in um, Psalm 61. And I have no idea how in such a short time I'm going to do this justice. Um, but we'll have a go. Right, I need to try and keep these passages open too. Okay. So this morning, um, I would like you to imagine... Uh, that you were sitting in that synagogue um, and you were hearing Jesus read out those words. Now, those words in Isaiah 61 would have been so familiar to you, to your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and so on. And these would have been words that you had been longing to see fulfilled in your lifetime. You had been longing to see your nation restored, redeemed, freed, made great again. And then here he is, here's Jesus, the carpenter's son, standing up and telling you these words were being fulfilled today, right in your hearing. And so the people are on their feet, you're applauding, you're ecstatic. Finally, here is the one who has been promised, the one they've been waiting for, the one they've been waiting for for centuries, written in their scriptures, the Messiah, 
the anointed one, the one who was going to come and rescue God's people of Israel. Here he was. He'd come at last. Here he was reading his manifesto for his work, his ministry in your synagogue. But that's not what happened, is it? This wasn't the people's reaction that day. So what was wrong with what Jesus read or what he said? When the people read Isaiah 61, they expected God to come and rescue them, to restore them. They expected God to destroy their enemies and to bring Israel into its rightful place as a great nation. But here was Jesus reading this passage and then telling them, actually, that what they'd been longing for and what they'd been waiting for wasn't going to happen in the way that they expected. And the reason the people were so angry with Jesus is because he was telling them that God was coming to rescue and restore, but not in the way that they had been hoping for and expecting all those centuries. As one writer puts it, it would be like someone in Britain or France during the Second World War speaking of God's healing and restoration for Adolf Hitler. What Jesus was saying was not what the people wanted to hear. So what did the people object to? Well, it could have been the fact that they didn't really want a carpenter's son standing up and telling them that he was the Messiah, not the sort of the Messiah that they had been expecting. But some scholars wonder about the translation we have in our Bibles in Luke 4, verse 22. And they think it's more likely that the people were astonished or possibly even annoyed rather than showing amazement admiration or appreciation and not because of how well Jesus spoke but because he was telling them something about God's grace which is translated as gracious words that they didn't want to hear and when you read on in Luke it appears that God that Jesus is saying that God's grace is for everyone not just for the Israel of Jesus day to the people listening, it seems that Israel's God was going to rescue the wrong people. Now, why might they think this? So those two strange examples that Jesus then gives um, about prophets from, Eli from Israel, Elisha and Elijah, he goes on to give these two examples. And the people in the synagogue that day would have known that for both of these prophets... God chose Gentile, non-Jewish people outside of the nation of Israel to either bless them or be blessed by them. Elijah was blessed, who was helped by a widow in Sidon when he ran away from a Jewish king, Ahab. And Elisha was sent off to heal a man with leprosy in Syria, although there were loads of lepers in the nation of Israel. And not just any man in Syria, but the commander of the army of their enemy. This is a really big hint from Jesus that God's plan was that he was going to bless not just Israel, but other nations too. And when Jesus read them Isaiah 61, he wanted the people that day to understand the Messiah was coming to bring God's love and mercy to all the nations. Instead of just rescuing one nation 
and inflicting punishment on their enemies as they expected. He was coming to bless all the nations. And in using the example of those two prophets, Jesus wanted them to see that just as God blessed and healed the Syrian through Elisha, God was going to bless other nations. And just like that widow in Zarephath and she blessing Elijah, God was going to use the other nations to be a blessing. The essence of who Israel was, God's faithful covenant love for a particular people, that was going to remain, but Israel was going to expand to include other nations too. Now the people should have seen this coming. It was written throughout their scriptures, but they hadn't quite got it. And so the message for them is really shocking. And it's so shocking that the people immediately looked for a way of getting rid of Jesus. The message was so different from what they'd expected and it brought a really violent reaction. And so we see another prophecy being fulfilled here as well. When Jesus was a baby, he'd had a prophecy over him by a man named Simeon in Luke 2.34. And he'd said, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. And we see it starting here, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. People either loved or hated Jesus. So we've seen in Luke 4, Jesus announcing that he is the promised one to come, the one prophesied by in Isaiah, and it hasn't gone down very well. But now we're going to have a quick look at what the passage says about him. And you'll need to possibly flick backwards and forwards. So when you look at Isaiah uh, 61 verse 1 and Luke 4:18, we see from the very beginning the role of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' ministry is proclaimed. Jesus is anointed or empowered with the spirit of the sovereign God. The spirit rests on the anointed one as he does the work of God. And this is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working beautifully together. The anointing. But what's the purpose? Who will be the focus of the Messiah's rescue plan? And the purpose you see is summarized as good news for the poor. And you see that right in verse 1. And then it gives a list of the people that the, peop that the Messiah would bring good news to. The passage tells us that the people needing the good news are those in distress. The poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. Those who are downtrodden and disadvantaged. And the Messiah is going to come and heal, to bring and restore to wholeness, to offer forgiveness. And it covers every area of life and every area of brokenness. And healing and release of every sort. If you read through Luke's Gospel and you read what he says about the poor, you'll see that the poor means both the economically poor as well as the spiritually poor those who are physically blind as well as those who are spiritually blind. Release for those who are in debt as well as those who are in spiritual bondage. This is not just about personal renewal and restoration, although obviously it is very much those things, but it's also about bringing healing to people in society, 
bringing restoration to those who are physically oppressed. When John the Baptist wanted to know if Jesus was the promised one to come, Jesus replied in Luke 7, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. So we've seen the spirit anointing and the purpose of the Messiah's ministry. But what about the results? The work of the anointed one is salvation. And if you look in verse 2 of Isaiah 61, it talks in Old Testament language about the year of the favor of the Lord, which was the Old Testament speak for salvation. I don't know if you noticed, but in Luke 4, Jesus stopped reading at that point. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but he doesn't go on to talk about the day of vengeance of our God. Now, it's not because Jesus doesn't think that vengeance and justice is important, but at this point in his ministry, what he wants the people to hear is salvation. He wants them to hear about healing. He wants them to hear that he's, he's come for restoration. He finishes his reading with words of salvation, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. So what is this salvation that the Messiah is going to bring? We read that the Messiah proclaims, it's by his word, three times, to proclaim the good news. And then again, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to proclaim salvation or the year of the Lord's favor. The proclamation is the word. And what do we read in John 1, verse 1? We read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the word. He is the proclamation. He's not just the one who will bring the good news. He is the good news. He's not just the one who will bring freedom. He is freedom. He isn't just bringing salvation and restoration and healing. Jesus himself is salvation, restoration, and healing. The suffering servant is not just hurling words at the poor. He is the healing that they need and that we need. The suffering servant is going to gather up broken hearts and bandage them together in himself. He will give liberty and release as he gives us himself. See, restoration is not about our willingness to have God, but his willingness to have us as he suffers and dies in our place. So we've seen the Spirit's anointing on Jesus. We've seen the purpose and rescue plan. And we've seen the resulting salvation in Jesus. And so lastly, I want us to look at the experience that this salvation offers. What does, this, what does salvation bring us in Jesus the Messiah, the suffering servant? And we're going to look at the following, some more verses in Isaiah for this. Isaiah tells us that when we experience salvation, there are amazing, wonderful changes. 
and us being the Gentiles that God has brought into his church, this now relates to us. So there's lots of things we could pull out here, but I'm just going to pull out three things quickly. In verse 3, if you look at Isaiah 61, we look and see about transformation. It says, God will give a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. This is not superficial happiness or beauty, but this is deep joy and well-being, or shalom, that Christ will bring into our lives despite our outward circumstances. And then secondly, we're called to reflect the beauty of the Lord. It says that we're going to be oaks of righteousness. Oaks, those magnificent trees, symbolizing stability, permanence, and abundance. But what for? And it says, for the display of his splendor. Isn't that incredible? As we live in Jesus Christ, he wants us to show the world his grace to save and his power to heal and the joy of living in a relationship with God. We're told here that we're to display him to the world. It's like we're to be mirrors. When his beauty is reflected in us, we become beautiful too. We're given the awesome privilege of reflecting the beauty and splendor of God to the world around us. So firstly, we're transformed. Secondly, we're called to reflect the beauty of God. And then thirdly, in verse 6, it says, You will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. So thirdly, we're called to be priests. Priests are people who stand as a mediator between God and others. Priests call people back to God. They help others know and worship God. In 1 Peter 2 verse 9 it says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are a royal priesthood made to declare God's praises. This is the priesthood of all believers. And Bishop Graham writes in a book that God chooses a part of humanity to bless the rest. He chooses a part of humanity to bless the rest. God calls the church to be priests so that we can bless and serve the world around us. He calls us to be with him, but at the same time, we're to have the people of the world on our hearts. So in summary, we're called to be distinct. In verse 8 and 9, it says that God is going to make an everlasting covenant with us. And then all who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. He makes an everlasting covenant so that all who see them will acknowledge that we are a people the Lord has blessed. We're to be distinct. And for some, our distinctiveness will be attractive. But we also need to be aware for some, it won't. And this can result in opposition, just like we read in Luke 4 for Jesus. 
So what an amazing privilege we have. We see this suffering servant who brings salvation to us. And through that salvation he offers us, we're transformed. We're to reflect the beauty of God. And we're to stand as mediators between God and the rest of humanity. And this is a huge calling. God calls for unreserved commitment from his people. As the Lord has blessed us, so we are to bless others. We are to offer the salvation found in Jesus Christ to fight for justice and delight in our God. I don't know about you, I find this quite overwhelming. But then I have to remind myself, all we're doing is pointing to the one that these passages are about. We don't stand in the place of the suffering servant. The gift of salvation isn't ours to offer. We can't bring the healing and forgiveness of our own. But what we have to offer is lives that are changed, of a God who reaches down into our world and loves us unconditionally, passionately, and a God who is prepared to suffer and serve, who calls us to emulate him so that we can reflect his beauty to the world around us. Let's spend a few moments in quiet as we just think about this passage. You may be in a place today where you feel like those in verse 4, in a place of devastation and ruin. But Isaiah says, no matter how devastating the ruins or how desolate the land, God can enable all of it to be rebuilt. You may be in a place where you need comfort and healing this morning or where you need release. This passage tells us that God can bestow on you a crown of beauty, the oil of gladness, and a garment of praise. You may be in a place where you need encouragement that God can use you to draw others to him. God can make you an oak of righteousness for the display of his splendor and beauty. Well, this morning, you may feel simply that you want to know the Lord's salvation. And as you turn to Jesus, the suffering servant, God promises that he will make an everlasting covenant with you and everlasting joy will be yours.